Well, today we're going to be talking about uh, Ephesians chapter 1, but we're beginning a series, if you will, out of Ephesians. We'll be sharing for about five weeks out of Ephesians. There will be a little break in there for the missions conference. I'll explain that in a minute. But I believe that God has something very special for us in this uh, short little book. And over the next month plus, we're going to get a lot out of it. I wanted to just start by saying that Jesus is sufficient. He really is sufficient. And we see that in Ephesians. We see that he's sufficient for anything and everything that any of us will ever go through. In fact, whatever your issue is today or your issues are, whether they're personal issues or relational issues or marriage issues or parenting issues or work issues or church issues, whatever the issues are, Jesus is sufficient for all of those. And we're going to see that as we dive into Ephesians starting today. I think the thing that I want to start with is just a reminder that we have to get the first thing first, and that's the first thing we got to do. And we're going to see that in chapter 1. We have to get back to this point of Jesus being the sufficient source that can meet every need that we face. And he's more than that. He's Lord and Savior. He's God of the universe. We see his supremacy in Ephesians on full display. It's going to be an incredible time. And I'm excited to to get whatever God has for us out of this little book. Uh, I'm Nate Herbst. For those of you that don't know me, I work with the Great Commission Alliance. There's a, a picture of our team here. And I think I'm one of the most privileged people alive. Our team gets to help churches around the globe learn how to do evangelism and discipleship. It's a, it's a huge privilege to get to work with these folks. In fact, I won't be able to finish Ephesians with you because I'll be in Africa with three of those guys in about five weeks. But we'll have a, a very special guest finishing out the book for us. Okay, so I want to give you a little bit of a background to Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Let's read 1-1 together, and then we're going to unpack that. Paul, you could actually turn there. I should let you know. <laughs> And, you know, Paul tells Timothy, who happened to be in Ephesus later on, not to forget the public reading of Scripture. And, of of course, he said that because they didn't all have Bibles like we do, right? But it is just as important for us, and I I think there's something to reading it together. So we're going to read a lot together, so stay in Ephesians 1, and we're going to start with verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. Ephesus was a special, special place. I've never been there, but I've been real close. Here's a picture uh, in Turkey about 10 years ago. And maybe some of you don't know it snows in that area. Turkey's incredible. You see mountains coming right out of the ocean in a lot of places, right out of the sea. Snow, sea, I mean, it's just so beautiful. This was actually at a conference that at the time was the biggest conference of Christian students that the country had ever seen. And it was kind of secret. We didn't know till the day we got there where the conference was going to be. In fact, the ministry that we were there with had had three of their members martyred several months before this conference. And uh, so we didn't know we were going to be there. And I got there with my accountability partner, and actually my father-in-law, Aaron's dad, came with me. And we found out it was going to be at a ski resort. And, and, uh, whoa. Uh, I, of course, didn't bring any uh, snow gear but we are very privileged to take some students out snowboarding and skiing. In fact, most of those people were Muslims that we were reaching out to. Uh, This is about 200 miles from Ephesus right here. 
Okay, so Ephesus is a very special place. It was an incredibly important port city in the province of Asia. It was very strategic for ministry. Irenaeus says that this is where John wrote the Gospel of John from. There was a lot going on here. Paul probably spent more time here than anywhere else he visited on his missionary journeys. He, he, this was a strategic place. He also sent Timothy there, which was arguably the strongest leader at his disposal. And Timothy ended up spending the rest of his life at this location. He was eventually martyred in Ephesus. And so this is, this is a very special place. And in Paul's book to the Ephesians, you could kind of look at it as like a next steps class. He's not contradicting heresy here like he did in a lot of other books. He's not contradicting the false teachers. He's just outlining solid Christian theology for the Ephesians. It's almost like a next steps class. And he writes this epistle from imprisonment in Rome to his very beloved friends in Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus was a place of effective ministry. God was doing special things there. Paul had briefly passed through this on his second missionary journey. He'd been prevented by the Holy Spirit from preaching the gospel in this area, and he'd continued on over into Macedonia. He had clipped it on the way back to Antioch as well, and just briefly got to share uh, the gospel on that second time through. But this is basically where he starts the, the, the major thrust of his third missionary journey. And he ends up spending a lot of time here. Uh, you know, I want to make a note here about uh, Paul being prevented from sharing the gospel in this area. A lot of times we wonder, should I share with that person? I do this, right? Do I feel led to share with so-and-so? And I, I know as I read this, I want God to do a paradigm shift in my mind. Instead of asking, should I share with someone, I, I want to embrace life wondering, should I not, right? I'm called to be an ambassador. There aren't many times where an ambassador wakes up and goes, do, do I feel like my government wants me to be an ambassador today? <laughs> Probably wouldn't have his job very long. I want to be like Paul where unless God's saying don't, I'm taking the initiative to share. I want to tell you about a young lady that Pastor Gregory and Austin and I met this past week. Uh, we were out witnessing on the college campus, and we met her, sweet young lady, and she was so open to the gospel. And she told us, I want to believe this is true. I want to. I'm not convinced yet, but I want to. And she's willing to keep meeting with someone to hear a defense of the gospel. And as we walked away from that conversation, I thought, how many people just like her, are there all around us that we'll never, ever, ever, ever get to share with if we don't take a step of faith and initiate a conversation. So Paul here, he obeys the Holy Spirit. He waits until God's timing. We've all heard this, this famous injunction here at this church that ministry is received, not achieved. That's what was going on here. Paul was on God's timeline with Ephesus. He wasn't pushing something. He was saying, God, I'm yours and I'm going to do what you say in your timing, your way. And that's what happens here, and God absolutely blesses his time there. In, in chapter 19 of Acts, verse 10, we read that the entire region of Asia was reached. This is unbelievable, and two years to the point where all the Jews and Greeks of the area had heard the gospel. So in God's timing, Paul walked through the door that God had opened, and the gospel spread throughout this region. It was an incredible thing. Paul writes 1 Corinthians from Ephesus, 
And he tells the Corinthians in chapter 16, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost because a wide door for effective ministry is open for me, yet many oppose me. So it was a place of effective ministry, but it was also a place of extreme persecution. And we have got to get our minds around the fact that those two things often go together. They often go together. You guys, we have brothers and sisters around the world that are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus right now. Uh, Last fall, I was teaching on evangelism in a remote area of India. I'd never been there before. And uh, this had been the, the epicenter of the Odisha state persecution. And the man that I was traveling with, he's been working there for about a decade, he leans over to me and tells me there's no one in this room that didn't have someone martyred that they know. Uh, I, I remember weeping in that city like I've never wept before. But those people were eager to share their faith, eager, eager to tell the people that had killed their friends about the hope that they had in Jesus. In fact, I have a short video of one of these men saying, because of Jesus, we are happy, we are joyful, and <laughs> his Indian accent, it was so beautiful. You guys, sometimes persecution goes side by side with effective ministry. The Artemis cult was absolutely in control of Ephesus. It was the temple there, the Artemis temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and people flocked there from all over. There's a picture here of some of the remains of the Artemis temple. That's about what's left of it today. But I want you to know that this cult dominated everything. I don't always have something to share, so... Don't get too excited about it. I shared the piece of pottery last time. This is all I'm going to share in this time. This is a little coin from Ephesus. You see it there? That's actually a, co- that's a picture of a better copy of this. This is kind of worn down. If you would like to see this after the service, you're welcome to come and hold it. It's more than 2,000 years old. It's an authentic coin. But I want you to see something on this coin. On this coin, we see a B. And the reason, this is an Ephesian coin. You can see the E and the P up there. This is an Ephesian coin. But the B on this coin referenced the bees that followed the queen. And it was a reference to the priestesses of the Artemis cult following the queen, Artemis. And on the back, Artemis was considered a huntress. She hunted, and they had a deer. The entire monetary system of this city was, was hearkening back to Artemis. This cult had a complete control, a complete grip of Ephesus. Still, in the middle of this context, Paul was eager to get there. He wasn't looking at the opposition saying, could I I skirt around it somehow? He wanted to go straight to the center of it. He was was running for the battle. There's a quote that I always love from Chesty Pooler, great Marine. And I'm not like a Marine or anything like that. I just like the quote. (laughs) But, but surrounded by tens of thousands of enemy forces with seemingly no way out. He says, they are in front of us, behind us, and we are flanked on both sides by an enemy that outnumbers us 29 to 1. They can't get away from us now. <laughs> Isn't that a great perspective? Sometimes we live in a, a culture that's becoming more and more skeptical, and that's one reason I want to show stuff like this. I want people in this church to know we are talking about reality here, okay? But in an increasingly skeptical nation, in an increasingly secular nation, we ought not back down from the fight. Let's follow Paul's example of running straight to Ephesus in the Lord's timing, relying on his power to bring the gospel. 
because this world needs it now more than ever before. Uh, Paul and his companions' lives were endangered in the riot in Ephesus. We read about that in Acts 19. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that he faced the wild beasts in Ephesus, okay, which likely happened in this arena right here. Uh, Again, you, you see, if we read it, it's true. You can go and look at it, okay? Paul likely faced the wild beasts right there in that arena. He says that Priscilla and Aquila risked their lives for him. And when he writes this um, to the Corinthians, they were still with him in Ephesus, right? Uh, we see that in 1619, that they were with him in Ephesus. He, he, write, he wrote that to, to the Romans, I guess, in 16, but they, he, they had been with him in Ephesus through this uh, writing of Corinthians as well, okay? Some scholars believe that some of the biblical data actually imply a possible Ephesian imprisonment even for Paul. In 2 Corinthians 11, you'll remember, he said that he'd faced many imprisonments. So although there are a few records in Scripture of imprisonments, many believe that Ephesus would have been a more likely provenance for some of his uh, prison epistles, uh, like maybe Philemon. And so there is that out there. He might have even been imprisoned during this two- or three-year stay that he had there. Okay? Uh, Finally, Timothy and Onesiphorus were both martyred in this area. Timothy was martyred right at the end of the first century by a procession of of Artemis, this false goddess. And Onesiphorus was martyred in the area, but in 1 Timothy, I should say in 2 Timothy, we read that his family, after his martyrdom, remained faithful in the church in Ephesus, continuing to serve. And in fact, Zenos, his son, ended up helping Titus later on. So there was extreme persecution here, but also effective ministry. The two went hand in hand. There's something else that I want to say as we introduce Ephesians. This is kind of a long introduction. But we see in Ephesus a model of church structure. Not in the book of Ephesians, per se, but we see it in Acts as we read about Paul's ministry in Ephesus. In Acts 20.17, Paul meets with the elders of the Ephesian church. He calls for them. He meets them outside of town before moving on towards Jerusalem. They cry together. They, they encourage each other. It's a very special time that he spent with them, probably the last time he saw them before writing this book. Okay? But we see here a, a, a biblical pattern about eldership. And this is something that I'm a little bit fond of. I did my entire dissertation on uh, elder-run leadership And I just want to highlight a few notes here. First, uh, we see that there were elders in Judea in Acts 11. In Acts 14, we we see that there were elders in every church in Derbe, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. In Acts 15, 16, and 21, we see that there were elders in Jerusalem. In uh, 1 Timothy 4, 14, we read that Timothy was ordained by a plurality of elders, and we see the next very chapter, chapter 5, that is brought up again, that there was a plurality of elders there. Um, In Titus 1, 5, Paul tells Titus to appoint elders in every town in Crete, okay? Uh, In James 5, 14, there's an assumption of a plurality of elders that are there to pray for the flock. And in 1 Peter 5, 1 and 5, And 1 Peter was written to believers in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. We read about a plurality of elders. When we think about this elder model, this isn't just something that's the flavor of the month. This is something we see in the New Testament. Uh, Wayne Grudem puts it this way. Two significant conclusions may be drawn from this survey of the New Testament evidence. First, no passage suggests that any church, no matter how small, had only one elder. 
The consistent New Testament pattern is a plurality of elders in every church and in every town. Second, we do not see a diversity of forms of government in the New Testament church, but a unified and consistent pattern in which every church had elders governing it and keeping watch over it. Now, there's a reason for this. In the body of Christ, there's someone who wants to be the leader. (laughs) You know who that is? We're going to see it throughout Ephesians. It's Jesus, the head of the church. And when this model is done well, it's not always done well. That's like any model. We can do it wrong. Uh, But when it's done well, we see a place for Jesus as head of the church, not a single solitary man. Uh, Daniel Wallace puts it this way. The case of multiple elders in the local church is solidly based on biblical, historical, and pragmatic reasons. And I love this. By having several leaders, the church is more able to take on the personality of Christ rather than the idiosyncrasies of any one man. Uh, So we see these three things as we intro Ephesians. We see effective ministry, we see extreme persecution, and we see an example of church leadership. Let's, let's get back to the outline of Ephesians. The first three chapters, a lot of scholars will tell you, are vertical. Our relationship with the Lord, while the fourth through the sixth are horizontal, how that works out in our lives, right? And you can uh, turn to the slide on the Ephesians outline here. Yeah. And as we see the vertical and the horizontal, a way to remember that is that we're looking at intimacy with Christ Unity in Christ and ministry through Christ, right? Intimacy with Christ, unity in Christ, and ministry through Christ. Uh, this, is, this is absolutely uh, fundamental. And then we can unpack the book something like this. The sufficiency of Christ. Next slide. Um, the sufficiency of Christ, what we're doing today. The work of Christ, we'll look at that next week. The gospel of Christ, we'll look at that two weeks from now. We'll take a break for the missions conference, but then we're going to get back to the body of Christ and the life of Christ. We're going to combine a very brief look at Ephesians 4 with a major focus on Ephesians 5 there and letting Christ live his life through us in the church. And then we'll finish with the victory of Christ on October 7th. And then the next day I fly to Africa. And then we're going to have a very, very special guest conclude it by going back to chapter 4 and looking at how this plays out in our church. How does Ephesians play out in our church? It's going to be a special time. So the outline for today, Jesus is sufficient because he's God. He's sufficient for our eternity. He's sufficient for our present reality. And he is sufficient for this church body. He's sufficient for all of it. And it's going to be exciting to see that here. Now, one, two through three, let's go ahead and read verses two through the first part of three together. Okay? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, there's a lot that could be lost in translation there. You could easily read that and not see the deity of Christ, right? Because we're reading it in English and sometimes we miss things that were written in a very different culture. My brother was in a closed country in Asia several years ago. He didn't speak the language, but he had some tracts that he was handing out, and he was in a remote part of the country. He also had a translation book, (laughs) and in the translation book, he would point to things so that he could get around. And he was staying with a host there who he desperately wanted to reach for Christ, could share tracts with him and all that, that was about it. 
and he wanted to invite the man to dinner, right? And so he pulls up, uh, can I take you to dinner in the, in the translation book? And he, he points at it, and he turns it around and shows him. And the guy goes, like, no, 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 no. And David's going, that's bizarre, right? And he turns it around. He accidentally pointed to, do you want to go dancing with me? <laughs> and of course, not speaking the language, he had no way to correct himself. <laughs> if you've ever done missions anywhere, you've come face-to-face with your own example of things being lost in translation. Well, we see some of that here, and I don't have, the whole, I don't have a ton of time, so i got to kind of zoom through this stuff. I'm sorry if I go a little fast this morning. But when we see this reference to the Father, we might not catch that instantly as a reference to deity, but they did. The people in the Roman world did. In fact, your social class in the Roman world was determined by four things. First, it was determined by your clan. What was your family? Next, it was determined by your control. How much money did you have? How many people did you have under you? Next, it was determined by your conquests. What great things had you done? And finally, it was determined by your citizenship. Okay, So clan, control, conquest, citizenship. Citizenship being the lowest. So you could be a Roman citizen, but you'd have a low place in society compared to someone that was born into one of the noble families, right? And this is true of the whole world. And when you said, I am the son of so-and-so, that meant I am the social class of so-and-so. When Jesus said, God is my father, he was saying, I'm the social class of God. I want to show you a picture of a Roman cursus honorum, okay? And this is uh, a statement of, of value, and here's the translation, Decius Marius Venantius Basilius, a famous and high-born man. See, he's starting with clan there. A famous and high-born man, prefect of the city of Rome. He's talking about his control. I'm in control of Rome. Uh, a patrician and consul ordinary. All this is part of his control. The patrician is also part of his clan. He was part of the, the ruling families of, of uh, the Roman Empire. And he has restored at his own expense the arena and the podium. This is his conquest. The arena was rocked by an earthquake. I rebuilt it. I'm a hotshot. I'm a big guy. That's what he was saying. Which the disaster of a deplorable earthquake had laid low. The last being citizen, of course, as a, as a noble man, as a patrician, he was a citizen of Rome, descended from the founding fathers of Rome. He was saying for everybody, I am the top dog, and he starts right there with his birth. Sometimes we'll miss it, but right there in a statement of God as Father, we see a hint at deity that we shouldn't miss. In fact, Jesus said this in a Jewish context in John 5, 18, right? He called God his Father, and what did the Jews say? They tried to stone him because he was calling God his Father, making himself equal with God. Catch that? So we see right here at the start of Ephesians a picture of the deity of Christ. We also see the word kudios Lord here. This is the word that the Greek translation of the Old Testament had used exclusively to translate Yahweh. And the people in that context knew there's the two go hand in hand. That same word is applied to Jesus hundreds of times in the New Testament. Okay. Also, every time New Testament writers quoted Yahweh from the Old Testament, they used this word. 
An example would be Romans 4, where Paul quotes Psalm 32 and he uses kurios to translate Yahweh. And then six chapters later, he says Jesus is kurios. And there's only salvation, salvation in calling him that and recognizing him as that. Does that make sense? So we see these two blatant references to the deity of Christ right at the beginning of Ephesians. And this is something that we see unpacked throughout the rest of the book. He is Lord. He is God. Everything is under his feet. We are under his feet. The church is under his feet. Everything exists for him. And he is in charge of it all. And that's how Paul starts this whole thing. A couple quick other references to the deity of Christ. There are very clear references throughout scripture. Some of them are posted there. There are supporting passages like Mark and the first gospel, as far as timeline, um, not location in the New Testament, Mark calls him the Lord of the Sabbath. Obviously, that's says he has power to forgive sins. Jesus claimed that of himself. Uh, there are supporting passages like that going on. There are prophecies. You know, in Zechariah 11, Yahweh God says 30 pieces of silver is the price with which they sold me, right? And in chapter 12, Yahweh says they'll look on me whom they've pierced. So we see prophecies. We see shared attributes of both God and Jesus. Uh, creator, Isaiah 40, 28, and Colossians 1. Or every knee will bow to God, and every knee will bow to Jesus. Matthew 28, uh, I should say, uh, Isaiah 45 and Philippians 2. One note I want to make about Philippians 2, that's Jesus' cursus honorum. That cursus honorum we just saw, right? Hellerman points this out in his book. Paul takes the Roman cursus honorum and he flips it. Jesus being in very nature God, he humbled himself. And we should have that same attitude. We're not in this fight to try and one-up each other. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, following his example of humbling himself, not trying to get over. And then Paul in chapter 3, side note, does the same thing. He gives his cursus honorum and says it's all rubbish compared to just knowing Jesus. It's all trash, Okay. Okay, so we see many references uh, to the deity of Christ. Trinitarian passages like Matthew 28, 19. Uh, just a side note, scholars uh, will point out Trinitarian passages, references in almost every chapter in Ephesians. And then even the Son of Man title, Jesus referred to him as the Son of Man more than any other title. And that was something from Daniel 7 that meant he was the judge of the earth with eternal dominion. And when he used that title of himself in front of Caiaphas, Caiaphas ripped his clothes and said, blasphemy, because he knew that Jesus was referring to himself as God. Does that make sense? We see this all throughout scripture. Jesus is God, and because he's God, he is sufficient for anything that we could ever face, guys. All right. Where are we at in this? <laughs> um, the Trinity is complicated, but it's not incoherent. Uh, just like this room. We're in one room, but it has length, width, and height. Three distinct dimensions, one room, right? They're not just different names for each other. They're three distinct elements, but they make one essence. It's the, it's the same with God, the three in one. There's no contradiction there. Jesus is sufficient because he's God. He's also sufficient for our eternity. Let's read verses 3, the second part, through 14 together as we look at his sufficiency for our eternity. So starting in 3b, uh, who has blessed us, a minute, we got that? I'll just go ahead and read it. Okay, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, 
to be holy and blameless in love before him, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together under Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him we have also received an inheritance, because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession of the praise of his glory. We see here that he is sufficient for our eternal life, which begins the moment we trust him, guys. We read that in John 10, 28, and 1 John 5, that the moment we trust him, that eternal life begins. He's sufficient for all of it. Having chosen him, You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, right? Paul unpacks some of those. He says that that we've been chosen and predestined. I don't want to dig too deep into this. Uh, There are different ways to look at that. Uh, I think sometimes we get tangled up looking at it within time. We can't put God into time. Let me read a little quote to you. Everyone who, this is from C.S. Lewis, by the way. Everyone who believes in God at all believes that he knows what you and I are going to do tomorrow. But if he knows I'm going to do so and so, how can I be free to do otherwise? Well, here again the difficulty comes from thinking that God is is progressing along the timeline like us. Okay, we get into big trouble when we put God into time. He's the creator of time. The only difference being that he can see ahead and we cannot. If that were true, if God foresaw our acts as if he were in the timeline, it would be very hard to understand how we could be free not to do them. But suppose God is outside and above the timeline. In that case, what we call tomorrow is visible to him in just the same way as what we call today. All the days are now for him. You never suppose that your actions at this moment were any less free because God knows what you are doing. Well, he knows your tomorrow's actions in just the same way because he's already in tomorrow and he can simply watch you. In other words, to us, God foresees the future because we're in time, but to God, he just sees it all. He sees it all. Does that make sense? My free choice in time is concurrent with his eternal choice out of time. And just because he chooses doesn't mean that I don't also choose Here's a great example. Here's my precious wife, Erin. And uh, truth be told, I liked her a long time before she liked me. (laughs) And uh, I chose her long before she chose me. (laughs) There was a waiting game, and I thank God that she finally uh, chose me. The point being, we both have a choice here. But you've been chosen by God, and that's exciting. That's something to be very thankful for, that he reached out to you that he said, I loved you. Remember, God chose Abraham, we read in Genesis 12, but not to exclude the nations, but to to reach the nations. 
And I think the same thing is happening right here. We also read here that we are loved by God and we've been adopted as his children. We've been lavished with his grace. We've been redeemed and forgiven through his blood. We've been shown the mystery of his will, which was accomplished at just the right time. Daniel had prophesied hundreds of years before the exact date, scholars would say, that Jesus would be crucified for our sins. This happened at just the right time, and we've been, we've, that mystery has been revealed to us in Christ. It's not confusing any longer as it was for millennia. Uh, we've been included in his inheritance, Paul says. We've been sealed with his Holy Spirit as a guarantee of his salvation. My goodness, we have been very blessed. We have been very blessed. And all of that is not something that we accomplish in ourselves. It is something that we are given the moment we say yes to Jesus. The moment we trust him for our eternal life, the moment that eternal life begins at salvation, all of this is ours in him. Now, every day becomes a daily choice of walking this out and letting him live his life through us so that we can experience all of this. Uh, he's sufficient for the eternal life we now experience with him, guys. He's also sufficient for our present reality. He's sufficient for anything and everything we could ever be going through. Uh, Paul says here, uh, let's read. Do we have that slide, verses 15 through 19? I'll read it. Paul says, This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty strength. He is sufficient for anything you are dealing with. For whatever you're going through, he is sufficient for it. Paul prayed fervently that the Ephesians would understand their new identity in Christ and who they were in Christ and all they had been given in Christ. Right? He reminds them in this passage of the hope of his calling. Right? He also tells the Romans that hope will not disappoint us. We know who we are in Christ. We know what he's done for us, and that will not ever disappoint us. He reminds them not to lose sight of the wealth of his inheritance, that wealth that Peter says will never spoil, that will never fade. He reminds them of the power of his strength. That's real power, the same power that rose Christ from the dead in our lives every day, right? Peter also says that, that because of his divine power, we have everything we need for life and godliness. Guys, this is all found in him as we walk in him. Uh, Jesus, um, Paul actually uses that phrase before going on. That in him phrase, Paul actually uses the phrase in him or in Christ more than 20 times in this book. <laughs> he's, I think he's making a point that we need to catch, right? He's sufficient, He's sufficient. And Jesus claims this of himself. We all know Jesus' famous I am statements, but I want to look at those again right now. Uh, Jesus says in John 6, I am the bread of life. He says in John 8, I am the light of the world. And John 8, 50, 80 continues, he says, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. This is one of those clear statements to deity that Jesus makes. 
using this Old Testament title for God. Uh, Jesus also says, I am the door to salvation. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. Church, whatever you are going through, he is sufficient for it. And he's not just sufficient for your present reality. He is sufficient for our church body. He, we, we got this in him. <laughs> the transition team gets a lot of emails, and we're so thankful for those. I saw one the other day that, that said something along the lines of being very excited that God is bringing us through this time. Something like that. I'm paraphrasing. I am too. And I can tell you one thing. It's not because of us. It's not because of anyone in here. It's because of the one who is the head of this church, the Lord God himself. He will get us through this and he will bring us into all he has for us. Amen, right? I just got to make a side note, guys. Now is not the time to give up on Hoffmantown Church. <laughs> I am excited to see what God has for this church. Great things lie ahead as we keep our eyes on Jesus, who is sufficient. Verses 20 through 23. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Now, that's the end of chapter one, but what we don't want to miss here is that he is sufficient for our body. And the power of the resurrection, Paul says right here, is ours because of him. You guys, like I mentioned, we live in a skeptical age, and because of that, I always want to share a little apologetics when I get a chance. Let's look at this uh, slide that has Habermas's minimal facts on it. Habermas stood right here before this podium about five, six months ago, and uh, he's demonstrated that these facts are irrefutable even by secular um, scholars in this field. Jesus died by Roman crucifixion and was buried in a private tomb. The disciples were initially discouraged. The tomb was found empty shortly after his burial. The disciples and numerous others were convinced they saw the risen Christ. Their lives were completely transformed. They even went on to face death for this. The story of the resurrection took place very early. Habermas stood right here and told us you can trace it back to the year it happened. Their testimony and preaching took place initially in Jerusalem, the only place on this planet the story could have been refuted where it happened. And the resurrection was part of the gospel message right from the start. Sunday became the primary day for gathering and worshiping for these believers because of the resurrection. And James, Jesus' skeptical brother, and even Saul, a persecutor of the church, came to believe because they saw the risen Christ. You guys, if those facts are true, and they can't be refuted even by modern secular historians, the resurrection is a fact of history. We knew that. But what I also want you to know is the evidence is clear on that. Okay? Jesus rose from the dead, and the same power that rose him from the dead is available to us today and to this church today for all that God has for us. The risen Christ has dominion over everything and over everyone, Paul tells us, and he is the head of this church. That is not a figurative statement. He desires to lead us in an active way on a day-by-day -day basis. In Colossians 1.18, we read that Jesus is the head of the church, or the body, the church. You guys, as we grow together and as we keep our eyes on him, 
there will be a beautiful unity that comes out of him in us. As we connect with him, that will work through our church. That will work through our lives. Unless the Lord builds this house, the laborers labor in vain. I can tell you that everyone I've seen on the transition team, the elders, the pastors, the staff, they're looking to Jesus saying, you lead us, you guide us, you are the chief shepherd, you are the head. And I can tell you one thing, we are not going to go wrong with that commitment. Peter says that, uh, that Jesus is the chief cornerstone, that the whole church of living stones is built in alignment with. He is where we must start in this church. He's sufficient for our eternity, for our present reality, and for this church body. Before going into ministry, I was a chemist. There are a lot of scientists in here. <laughs> Don't ask me about my chemistry. I've forgotten most of it. <laughs> but I worked in forensic chemistry for a little while and then in, envirom- in, the, in the environmental field for a while. And one thing a lot of you know, whatever field you work in, maybe you've seen this in other areas, is if you don't calibrate something, everything else falls apart. doesn't matter how meticulous you are in your analysis. If you miss the calibration, you're toast, (laughs) right? Uh, I used to get subpoenaed many times a week to testify uh, in in like blood alcohol cases and things like that. I didn't want to mess up a calibration because I'd have to go explain to everybody how I messed it up. You guys, this is what Paul is telling us in Ephesians 1. There's a calibration issue. We can talk about all the good stuff. We can talk about the unity in the body, and we can talk about the victory in Christ, and we can talk about all the different family relationships and how to do those according to Ephesians. But Paul's starting right here because if we don't get Jesus in his rightful place of authority in our lives, the rest is just, it's just working in our own flesh, and it's never going to accomplish what only Christ can. So there's a calibration issue that we're being called to, and we each face this every day. When I sat in the airport with Emre and Carol and John a few months ago, there was a young lady there, and I was particularly intimidated by her because I thought she was very attractive, and I didn't want to um, come across like I was hitting on her or something like that. Does that make sense? I wanted to share Christ with her, but I had this, this little insecurity going on, like she's going to think I'm weird or whatever. Um, so I, I had to recalibrate. I walked away. I got Carol. Carol, Carol had said something about chicken or something, and I thought, I'm going to go get her that. But it was really an excuse for me to get away and do some work with God that I needed to do in my own heart. I needed to recalibrate. So I got away and I said, God, I'm yours. If you want me to share with this precious young lady, I'm all yours. Um, take away my insecurities, fill me with your power, and use me. And I went back and just started talking, nothing special, and it turned into an incredible, incredible conversation with a young lady that I had no idea, but she'd been wrestling with God for months. She'd been exposed to the Bible for the first time in the last few months, and she was hungry to know more about the Lord. Uh, She actually just emailed me last week and says she's going to get plugged into a Bible study next week. Isn't that special? Um, in her town. It's not here. It's far away. I can tell you one thing, though. I had to recalibrate so that I could meet Jesus where he was at and partner with him in what he was doing instead of just trying to do it in my own flesh. So that's the application I want you to consider right now, wherever you're sitting, okay? We all have to have this calibration moment with Jesus. And as we dive into Ephesians and go forward as a church, 
there has to be this first step of where do I need to be with Jesus? In Hebrews 12, we read that, that we need to put everything behind and keep our eyes on Jesus. That's the moment I'm talking about right now. In John 15, 5, we're told to abide in Jesus, right? That's the moment I'm talking about right now. Wherever you're at, I want you to ask the Lord what your recalibration step is, okay? How does he want you to reconnect with the vine to allow him to have his rightful place of authority in your life so that you can step into all that he's promised us right here in the first chapter of Ephesians. Will you do that for me? Will you take that step with the Lord to ask him what he would have you step into with him? How he would have you recalibrate with him? And I also want to ask you, if you've never trusted Christ as Savior and Lord, uh, this is the time to take that step. I shared some evidence with you today I can tell you that Jesus is more real than the air you're breathing. And he is sufficient for anything you're dealing with. Uh, If you've never trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord, the Bible is very clear that you and me are sinners that are loved dearly by God. It's also very clear that Jesus died for our sins so that we could be made right with God through faith. I want to close in prayer. And when I do this, I'm going to ask you, if you've never taken that step, just to pray with me. Uh, Let's do that right now. Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are and that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. Today, I ask you to be my Savior and my Lord. Please make me the person you want me to be. Amen. If you took that step today, you're his child. Uh, God, I thank you so much for this incredible church. Uh, the blessing that this church has been to me and my family. I thank you that you, Lord, are sufficient for this church. You're sufficient for our lives. You're sufficient for our eternity. Jesus, you are Lord and God, and you are sufficient for it all. Jesus, thank you so much for what you've taught us out of Ephesians and for what you're doing in our lives and for what you're doing in this church. We love you, Lord, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.